0: that is absolutely critical to the growth of companies, whether they are startups or corporate global players. Where management needs to juggle the challenges of market entry or knowing how to navigate the uncertainties of disruptive developments. Mindfeeding is where clarity evolves and helps solving organizational challenges. For those who listen to the entire episode I have a special surprise gift. I am working on some great guests that are industry leaders in management, innovation and marketing. Let's get started on today's episode. So I'm today here with David Ledgerwood, and he's based in Nashville, Tennessee. Today's topic is how to scale your B2B niche products when addressing medium to large companies who we want to get as clients. So before we go in deep, Ledge, can you maybe uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Thanks, Christian. It's good to be here with you. Absolutely. I'm a 13-time entrepreneur. My current adventure is a company called Ad One Zero, and we work with services businesses, particularly in B2B, who are looking to scale up from that beginning sort of half million dollars of sales and scale up to that uh, maybe $5 million of, of sales. So there's a very particular jump that companies need to take in the uh, operations and scaling and program build out for revenue. And we like to help them fund that by closing actual deals. So we work very specifically in that space to to grow that revenue. And when we're done, they can either hire an internal team or or keep us around. So uh, very focused, very niche, uh, but uh, it's our favorite thing to help founders never have to worry about cash flow again as they scale their businesses.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great thing because everybody needs, that, especially when you're growing or you have maybe bought a company and you said, okay, this company has a lot more potential to it, how to get started and everything. So uh, looking at the topic, how to scale your B2B niche products when addressing uh, medium to large customers, it's of course something where in today's time, it's not that easy and I'm sure you've got some uh, ideas and some experience how to go about it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, well, you use the word niche in there. And so I think, you know, that's really important. So you do need to focus in on what you are, are truly excellent at delivering and you need to be able to explain that. So, you know, the sales and marketing has to work together, right? Like those customers only will come to you and understand what you're doing if you can explain it in a succinct way. And I also think that one of the key things about scale is really going to be standardization. So, our clients, you can get yourself to where you're doing half a million dollars of services in a year by doing that strange thing that, that people like to do, where they say, you know, every statement of work and every contract we do is customized to our client. And, and that's a really good way early on to make sure that you can, you know, capture that revenue. What you will quickly find once you reach a certain scale, generally around that sort of half million type of mark where you have, I don't know, you know, five, 10 clients that are that are happy that you're delivering for, you're gonna run into issues where you can't scale anymore because you have no standards of delivery around the things that you offer. So it goes hand in hand with that niching down because what you really need to do is now say, which things do we offer in what combinations, the packaging the pricing, make it really tight. You can't scale sales when you're doing a customized version of everything, every time. And this is really something that we learned from software and we brought to the services sector as well. Nobody's surprised when you go to a a SaaS website, for example, and you see there, you know, three packages there, they have a name and, uh, you know, maybe it's silver, gold, platinum, you know, starter, business, professional, you name it. So we we look at those and we say, you don't get in, as a customer to negotiate with those companies. Why? Because they're designed for scale, right? You get to go to that and you buy that particular package. Yet in services businesses, you very rarely see that paradigm. When you go to their website, they say every customer is different and we work closely with you to do you know, each of the individual things that you need. And that's cool. That's a really great way to develop. Your initial traction and revenue but what ends up happening is it becomes unscalable to deliver it and to sell it once you are out of that seat yourself as the founder so what we want to be able to do is provide that standardization around the revenue program the packaging the pricing and the delivery so all those things become more scalable because we can say hey we actually have packages so when i sell package a I know start to finish what the exact customer experience is going to be. The customer uh, success team knows what that is. The onboarding team knows what that is. The delivery team knows what that is. And all we have to do is say, we sold package A. and Everybody goes into motion. So that customer experience gets a lot more fluid. And you're able to operationally to continue to deliver those things. We standardize the billing. We standardize all the... You know, sort of other pieces that touch sales. So when you think of a revenue function, people get hung up on sales a lot. You know, I just got to make sales. I got to make stuff. What does that actually mean? What we're trying to do there is design systems that scale so that when we start selling, we don't break down the operations around, you know, the inability to deliver uh, many different things and communicate many different things. And even a small team can have trouble with that unless you diligently work on building the the operating system, if you will, the knowledge management and uh, the documentation. So that's what we do. And we fund it by closing deals for, you know, the clients. So we actually take the sales calls and we're kind of like closers as a service as well.
0: Cool. So that's, uh, like, uh, a- not like a sus but more like a sis or whatever (laughs) clothing (laughs) as a service yeah it's actually quite a good thing because i think many companies have uh often one of the big problems of course is getting tidy um, because they have maybe a good product or a good service that's being sold but they really can't get it to the market properly in large enough that it produces the real realistic revenue that it has in potential. And that's an interesting thing. As you said, you can really scale it if you haven't got that much customization. Or, like the example I told you before about this uh, fire extinguishing system where actually the customer does the customization and the company where I'm involved with doesn't have to do the customization, just deliver the quantity of the items that actually need, and they then do a customization depending on the data center equipment and revenue, what they do. And as you think, um, as you said, when you think of it, all these different systems and services that you can do, you can do it over complicated, or you can do it really simple and put a set price. I don't know. How, how do they then do the packaging of their service that it becomes less customized?
1: You know, it's a lot of work at the beginning because everybody thinks their thing is really special. And uh, the interesting thing, I'm sure you've seen this with founders, is the way they look at what they have developed is, is features, 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 features. And we have to look at it and say, I don't really care at the sales level what the features are. I need to be educated in that in order to sell it, obviously, to answer technical questions. But what really matters there is the value. And if you look at the value of anything you're doing, let's talk about your product, for example, like what is the tremendous value there? You're talking about disaster prevention and mitigation. So it's really risk mitigation that you provide. So in the instance that something horrible happens and there's a fire in the data center, here's how this product is going to prevent your business from, you know, being destroyed, really. And, that's visceral. That's a value-based statement. I don't care what gas is in the thing. I don't care really how it's deployed. Some of the technical buyer might ask those questions, but those are the approval processes, right? These are not the things based on the value. So from a packaging standpoint, first thing we need to do is unpack all the services that a client does. It's like Literally, what do you do for a client? And you'd be surprised how difficult it is for people to describe that in a way that uh, is compelling so we have to wrap that into not only what things do you do why do you do them and not why you think you do them but why does the customer actually benefit from that and so it, it's this whole reconfiguration of the way you talk about the business it's not about features it's about value and can we derive that value down to you know one of two, basic path. My favorite path for a B2B service would be, hey, can I express this thing that you do in a way that very clearly tells the customer how we will make them more revenue? How will we make them more money? And I mean, top line, you know, those, those are my favorite things to sell. If I can't do that, then we're going to have to do, this is ways that we will drive down uh, the expense of, of you operating and sort of increase productivity, drive down expense, which should ultimately have the bottom line impact of more profit. So there's really only two things in the world. You can sell making somebody more revenue or you can sell making them more profit. I will always try to frame up product or service in a way that talks about making someone more revenue. And, And that comes down to my own experience as an entrepreneur saying, if I ever woke up at three o'clock in the morning with uh, the sweats, thinking about my business. I don't think I ever said anything else. And I think this is consistent for, you know, any founder, like the thing that they worry about most is more sales, Uh, more sales and more revenue drives all the other decisions. It's the limiting factor. It's the force factor. You can't change anything else if you don't have the revenue coming in. Uh, Money in the bank really matters the most. Now you could say, well, we could raise more money. We can borrow money. Sure. So those are, those are financing factors, but uh, at the end of the day, revenue and sales cures everything. And so if we can go to a company and figure out how to package what they do to communicate to their customers in a way that says, Hey, we'll make you more money. uh, That's a really compelling place to be. If we can't do that, we'll focus on, you know, cost mitigation, expense mitigation, additional profitability, uh, but make no mistake, those things are harder to sell.
0: Yeah, and with once you've done that, it is, even if they want to raise money, it's much easier then because they already have everything much more organized, they, are more, they have greater clarity about what they're doing, and the pitch deck is then as well much tidier. And uh, can I can imagine even there, that's something where they might even go and ask for your advice, because... You have this feeling, this let's say, this talent that you can simplify things to what really matters and get that across. I
1: would be interested to have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, very often, you know, since we're working with with services companies, you you typically end up with a gross margin of, you know, somewhere thirty to fifty, if we're lucky, you know, sixties and seventies, right? So, uh, typically, not the type of company that would would go raise money, but they very well might. Uh, take on debt financing. So it never is going to be worse for you if you need to explain your business and show your scalable revenue model. I don't care who you're talking to. It's a good thing to be able to do that. So if you're going to pitch for money, you're going to borrow from somebody, maybe you're going to sell your company, go through due diligence. The things that we do are simply necessary. Now we do them because it's going to unblock your revenue channel. Uh, But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of collateral benefit to that in any of the ways that you might have to wrap up your company and present it, having your ducks in a row really matters. And I I would argue having an organized revenue function really forces the rest of your company uh, to be on point because you have to have designed systems then for customer delivery, for operations, for finance, for billing, Uh, you know, sort of goes on and on, right? Marketing has to get in line with the messaging coming out of the, the sales channel. Because it directly comes from the customer, so we do look at it as a forcing function. So if if we're really going to make sales here, we're going to make some changes to the company. Are we all aligned that this is a company that wants to make more revenue? Generally, yes. Uh, however, you know sometimes people actually are stuck in their ways, and turns out they don't want to do the things necessary to to make more money. Uh, in that case, sometimes they they fail. You know, so unfortunately, with all the vision and you know, sort of other things and passions and all the things you can work on a business for. I agree with all of that. Uh, at the end of the day, though, revenue has to be number one or you just have a passion hobby. And so, you know, if I have to advise founders, it's, you know, just really think about you can love your business and what you do and you can have a lofty vision. Uh, but if you don't make any sales, you know, it, it's really all for naught.
0: Yeah. And as well, thinking, uh, who do you want to have a client? Because when you, for instance, as a, um, when we look at the the topic, um, looking at medium to large companies, like for instance, large enterprises and so on, they have a low churn of maybe three to five percent or so, which means that actually, if you have them as a client, only five percent of those enterprise clients are going to be leaving you per year, which is very low compared to small companies who might, oh, the price is too high or whatever, or they find something more interesting, they move.
1: <laughs> yeah, and <when> you <laughs> want to design your systems in a way that, uh, and this goes to your product design, delivery, your services, you know, the things that you do, uh, there are certainly mechanisms in your revenue model and delivery that you can design to be sticky. and And you ought to do that if you are highly replaceable. You know, there's no uh, it's in technology, what you'd call like a moat, you know, is there any technical mode where well, you can do the same thing in a service, like how important and embedded is what you do to your customer? And then really, how excellently do you do it? Because virtually no one replaces a vendor that does a fantastic job and can demonstrate, uh, you know, ROI, right? So in some senses, doing what we do is is the, you know, the best lowest you know sort of bar for kpis because we we produce revenue so uh it, it's a it's a good example of what i was was saying if we can come into a company and you know 10x their revenue well that that's a pretty good thing so i can point right at that and i like to do that for clients too you know how can we simply demonstrate uh cash over cash roi for the thing that you do no comp- company is going to walk away from doing business with you then
0: yeah, and if you deliver so much value, they want to, of course, lock in the price and the service so that uh, they give maybe even a, let's say a four-year contract. And you've got like your revenue secured for four years, which is awesome. And of course, the next time the four-year uh, renewal is there, they'll of course maybe even expand it even longer. You might increase your prices a little bit, but you still you've got the revenue locked in, which means you've got the client. And that, how do you think? Uh, companies, especially in that service area, can achieve that at a greater scale.
1: That's a great point. So contract terms can be written, you know, depending on the buyer. like So a larger company is going to have a lot of, you know, sort of their own procurement practices. It can be more rare to get a multi-year contract, but not not unheard of. And uh, if you have the opportunity to think about different billing terms where you could say, you know, hey, if we lock this in for several years, then uh, you can be assured that we will not raise the price on you and, and that's good for budgeting standards. Um, so depending on who your buyer is, you know, at uh, mid-level or to higher level, they, they could have uh, multi-year budget authority. So um, the way that I think people should negotiate that is another, another really excellent thing is if you have a cash-rich larger client and you could potentially bill up front for a whole year and give them uh, maybe a discount or, or something uh, terms of that nature as long as you can deliver on that stuff at, at high margin then you just sort of raised your own financing round from a, a customer. So I've had I've had clients where you know they were able to get a you know $350,000 check up front to uh, essentially then build out the product and service that they were delivering. and as long as they don't outrun that retainer, you know make sure that they can actually deliver on the contract. Um, and, and they do good cash flow management. You essentially just got interest free loan from your, your client that you can use to build you know, the rest of your company. So there are substantial uh, strategic ways to, to build out contracts like that that can really make, a, make or break the difference.
0: Yeah, and we think of it even for your balance sheet and even if you want to uh, get a loan or venture capital or anything of that, you've got that uh, revenue. Even you, if you don't get the money up front, you've got it locked as uh, revenue that's practically booked in your in your deals book, uh, locked in, and you know you've got the contract. And um, Realistically thinking big companies, whether they're big government companies, organizations, or big corporates, in rare occasions, they're going to go bust. Um, there are not that many Emronds uh, going around in today today's time, but uh, it's more the small companies who are suffering from pandemics and so on that, so badly that they can't survive. Um, but nevertheless, when you look at it, there's so much opportunity that you can use, and you scale up, you deliver something really good, and. Just imagine if you before just had maybe small and a few medium-sized and then you can double or, or or quadruple your amount of enterprise clients. That can be – maybe gets you even over the $5 million. What would you say?
1: I think you're right, yeah. And the only thing that I, I sometimes advise on a, a smaller company there is, is step your way up through size of client. Uh, don't try to jump essentially two orders of magnitude – which is to say, if you're used to delivering, you know, a service that I don't know, you know, it's ten thousand dollars a month. Um, be careful jumping to you know hundred thousand dollars a month or greater, because you might uh, damage your company. You can't deliver that fast. So you want to take smaller steps up. Be prepared. Don't just go from small business and think, hey, we're going to land Coca Cola or. Ford or you know what have you think about it from from that standpoint are you prepared to operationalize a a larger client like that uh but you're absolutely right you can monetize or or essentially borrow against uh a big company contract in a way that that you can't with um you know with a smaller
0: yeah. company yeah. yeah and the good thing about getting those clients they're they're good brands and um, it attracts other clients and so on for instance i had um, I've got as a one of my companies uh, I've got McDonald's as a client and they were attracted to us uh, because of another client that we have actually a government client and it's it's funny when you think of it yeah they saw but uh, they are our clients. So they decide, hey, if it's good for them, it's good for us as well. And it's a, a great relationship when they think it's over four years that we've got them as a client. And mm-hmm. it's a great thing. And you have all these different brand names eventually, time by time. And as well, medium sized companies will see that and think, oh, if it's good for this company and that company and that company, then it'll be definitely, then we're safe. We're not going to do something wrong because some managers, some purchasing managers, some CEOs, maybe if they've borrowed certain money or other kind of situations, they might be fearful of taking a wrong route and opting for the wrong service provider. Then it might be quite a fierce situation trying to get them to sign because they're not sure, are you going to cope with us? Do you have still capacity and everything? And then when you're just, oh, it's awesome. And that's the thing, I think, with with, when you have these enterprise or large companies, you have to standardize. Because they want to have uh, consistency in the way you deliver. And it helps you as well to reduce your own costs because it's all consistent. You have maybe standard um, operation procedure manuals and other stuff. So everything gets cleaner. It's not like, oh, we do it today like this, or today we do it tomorrow. It's like a painter painting houses. Today he paints the houses in pink, and tomorrow he decides to paint, paint them in yellow. And maybe on Sunday he would paint them in white. <laughs> It'll look a mess. It'll look a mess. But uh, even those things, those services as well. Just imagine a big corporation says, we want to paint the, the back, the, the houses, the buildings of our factory. And there are maybe five or six buildings. You can't have in the middle of a factory a pink building. You say we, we didn't agree to this. That was supposed to be gray, boring gray, and you made it pink. Oh, well, I, I want to be a bit artistic. It doesn't work. No. <laughs> you have to pay for the paint again, and I painted gray, and maybe it costs even more paint because you have to do it five times until the pink disappears.
1: Well, you mentioned a really important thing about booking large logos, and uh, people will very often try to get that very large client in order to say, you know, McDonald's is my client, for example which is Mm -hmm. is a fantastic thing to do because there's a a psychological concept of uh, social proof, right. That, you know, Mm -hmm. like, just like you said, that if, you know, a company that aspires to be an excellent large company sees a big logo on your, on your book of business, they're going to feel a little bit better about, you know, doing business with you. It checks that box. It's, there used to be a, a, you know, a saying in the the eighties, you know, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM and it's the same thing. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, if I, and I see this happen. So my warning for small services companies when you're going after the, the big logos is make sure that you read in the contracts uh, and and take out or negotiate clauses where they may prevent you from using the, uh, the logo or, or likeness or brand in order to promote your own business. So uh, very typically the standard contracts that I see from large companies will say, you can't tell anybody about the work we did together. And you're doing, you know, you're so excited about getting the big client that you kind of skim over that and you don't think uh, what the important implications of that are. So now you're doing business with McDonald's. That's great, but you can't tell anybody. And a lot of corporate contracts have that and where we have to actually go back and uh, renegotiate and, um, you know, make sure that those clauses are not in there. Uh, and you can you can have it written in such a way that you know well, well we need written approval first from you know our direct client or you know, something. Almost always they'll budge on it mm-hmm. unless there's mm-hmm. some major trade impl- uh, you know implications. But um, that's just something to to watch out for as you you start doing business with those big companies.
0: Exactly, and even if you start doing government tenders and so on, there's pages and pages of just that uh, documents for tender. It, we had so many documents and just the, the, the government um, tender rules and the and the um, terms of delivery, terms of service, t- terms of payment. It was pages and pages of stuff. And you have to go through this whole stuff and, and read it and see and discuss with the partners, okay, what does this mean? Sometimes some of them don't understand and you have to explain it. If this and this happens, well, how likely is that going to happen? Mm, maybe less than 1%, but if it happens it might be a very adverse situation. And that's where I see always as good, as you say, not only just to read the terms, but if you are not used to reading that kind of terms, maybe to get advice from somebody who who knows this, who's maybe done this kind of stuff, even if it's a lawyer. And uh, we in in Europe uh, tend, companies usually tend at a certain size and eventually to start hiring lawyers and have them on their own payroll because you've got so much stuff and so much paperwork that it pays off to have them to do the standard stuff. And when there's something really special, then you go and hire a law firm who is specialized in some kind of litigation or some kind of very special uh, contracting that is not typically the stuff that your own internal uh, law expert actually handles. And then you can mitigate. And and the salary that he might cost... um you can pay ten, it pays off 10 times the amount you would have otherwise lost if you've been silly enough to sign a contract without actually knowing what you're getting yourself into
1: absolutely yeah i think that's that's right and just be careful before you you know sign off because you're excited and i've seen small companies do that they're so excited about that first uh you know fortune 500 client or or something of that nature that they get themselves into a situation where And and there are sometimes even liquidated damages, you know, in those contracts where if you can't Mm -hmm. deliver, they're going to get you to pay them money. And, you know, and that's, that's extremely Mm -hmm. difficult to do. Uh, Government's a whole different issue where they have, you know, 90 or 100 day payment terms. So how are you going to finance the work while you're, you know, delivering that? So I've seen, you know, tens of millions of dollars of government contracts that uh, companies get themselves into a substantial cash flow hole because they have to pay you know for four months of their work to then bill you know one thing and then that has you know 90 day or 100 day turnaround terms and you know you're owed the money, but you can't get it so your AR balance goes up and up and up um, yeah. so it's and it's challenging
0: exactly and they might not even pay in, uh, in time although they were supposed to pay. For what a reason, it's just because the government organization maybe is slow, the accounting is slow and process slow. And now with pandemics, of course, anyway, if everybody not sitting in an office, uh, it creates, of course, everything much slower. And that's the same thing as well when you think how to sell to the medium and large companies, when everybody is in the home office, you can't just go and visit them. You can't send them a, print, uh, pro- a printed info material or anything and even contact them on LinkedIn. They get like a thousand messages a day. Ah, oh, they can't get through this stuff and eventually mm-hmm. ignore you. So you have to think, okay, how do I find a new way to actually get through to the person with my niche product, which is going to sol- solve the problem, that's clearly But you have to go through the noise.
1: And as you're scaling, you have to scale all of your processes in the same manner. People get excited about, well, you brought me 10 new clients, but they don't know how to scale their billing operation, or they Mm -hmm. don't know how to scale their delivery, or Mm -hmm. there's not enough project managers. You have to keep hiring people. Uh, It's really easy to get upside down in your cash flow if you grow your sales too fast because you actually need to do the things. That you were selling, and so we became aware of, you know, as our systems worked better and better for clients, that we sometimes had to to pump the brakes and say, you know, can we make sure that you can actually deliver this? And we would see the billing times go up and up and up because they weren't able to, you know, handle the the AR because they didn't have proper billing in place. So we have to come in and work on the finance thing. So it's a very interesting, you know, sort of uh, connected. System. I think people sometimes think sales is, you know, just out there on its own and everything else, you know, it won't matter. Let's just bring more clients in. You need to be able to do all the mechanisms necessary to deliver for clients and to build the clients and, you know, actually scale the organization. So uh, you have to think about that in lockstep.
0: Yeah, and when you compare it with the SaaS system, uh, most SaaS systems are nowadays um, invoice or, let's say, charge on credit cards. Now, that, that on a niche product or a niche human resources service or anything of that, you can't not necessarily uh, charge a credit card uh, from the enterprise company. You'll have to send the invoice in, somebody has to approve it, has to go to accounting, and then somebody in accounting has to then go and click the button and Activate the payment or activate the date when they are going to decide to pay the money to you, which is a little bit slower process. And as you say, they have to follow up all the time because sometimes invoices even fall through the cracks without the large company actually wanting to do any bad thing to you. It's just
1: I did re- I do recommend people you know always make sure that they have a, a personal billing contact if they can. You know, it's, it's mm. just you know. AP at Mm companyx.com. You can, you can email that all day long and you don't have a a personal contact. Uh, Most of the time, most companies now will uh, collect your ACH information and, you know, do an electronic payment, which is, is nice. So, you know, always explore uh, those opportunities as well. If you have easier and standard billing terms where you get paid the same amount of money every month, a retainer of some sort, on a recurring basis, that's a lot easier to deal with because you know that they're going to cut you you know, electronic check every first of the month. So there's a lot of ways that you can think about making life easier for your customer so that it's actually making life easier for you.
0: Exactly, because they then just need to um, confirm in the system, actually, that uh, you delivered your monthly quota. And then it's just said, Delivered, quarter, delivered, and month in system activated. It doesn't matter whatever kind of system you're using, when you're use, using SAP or other kind of products and so on. All these systems uh, allow this for big companies actually to uh, do that. That's, as you said, that's a really big advantage of having one big invoice and then the customer just knows, okay, at this and this date, we've agreed to make this and this payment, and it's standardized for everybody easy, and they just need to say, yep, you've delivered this month. Fine. We pay you. All okay. All cleared. And it's so much easier than, oh, we have to confirm again a new invoice and so on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Do not. Uh, yeah. If you can have find standardized billing terms to get paid the same amount every month, it's going to make a huge difference. If you do the long light item thing where they're going to have to go through it and basically don't act like a lawyer unless you're on retainer you
0: know (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly that's the thing that's the thing you have to really try to keep it as simple and easy and not doing things that uh, maybe creates questions where everybody thinks thinks, what's this again this has changed what what is this supposed to be and then and then you start thinking "Oh, oh red flag something is not right and then you get audited. Did he deliver the stuff? Is the stuff usable or whatever? And then they get freaked out in the organization. And you were thinking, but I delivered everything. Oh, who changed the wording on this stuff or whatever? And now everybody's going nuts. And then I think, uh, why did you just brief this stuff? It just confused us all. Totally well, necessary. you're making a
1: good case, is why I don't always recommend people deal with a large company, you know, because you need to be prepared to um, weather those those storms and there's just endless problems that, you know, you, you become your own like sort of chief billing officer. Uh, Mm. if you don't have somebody dedicated to that stuff, like you said, with lawyer and with, you know, a proper, uh, billing mechanisms and and people to chase that stuff down, you are introducing some problems, you know, where maybe Mm. dealing with that medium sized company nobody ever heard of isn't such a bad thing. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and, and that's puts well that puts as well a point on. Even with the small and medium-sized companies, you still have to know whether you've been paid or not. And uh, nowadays, there's so many tools that you can actually connect your bank accounts, your credit cards, PayPal, and all Stripe and all the different kind of stuff that you have, and then it can automatically allocate the payment that comes in to that particular invoice that you sent out, or uh, allocate a deduction from your account that is uh, connected maybe with the invoice of your supplier. Might be that you, let's say you are a service company who is, um, let's say, fixing the the antennas for, for a G5 service provider and that. Yeah, uh, you have to maybe each time you have some cleaning or the other stuff that you have to buy in. Uh, that comes as well every month because you have to refill your trucks with all the necessary tools and material that gets used up over the process of the week's. Yeah, And that cuts as well your costs. And, and I see that from the great thing when we introduced a system like that, we cut, cut our cost, uh, accounting costs by a good 70%, which you think, wow. So moving from a standard old-style way into a pre-accounting system, it says everybody's so much pain. And you notice when a client hasn't paid because you see it, it pops up all the time, right? I see, oh, this invoice doesn't have a payment. And still doesn't have a payment and it automatically knows this system should have been paid 15 days ago mm-hmm. and you know okay i have to make a call send an email <laughs> find out what's the problem and, and, and somebody needs
1: next. to do that right it has to be exactly. somebody's job to chase that stuff and so often we see companies because anybody checking on this this is luckily for us it, it also helps then because we like we like getting paid our commission checks. So we're tracking the things. And I can tell you right away that a lot of times people are just not billing. And it's, it's been six months since you started this contract and nobody's invoiced it. And so, you know, we keep up with that. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a forcing function as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, you make you make great points. And I, I think that uh, the overarching way to think about that is, Always looking at the data that you need in your business, and you can put in place all these different disparate systems, and you know a constellation of different SaaS products. Do they talk to each other? Are you reporting properly between them? And, and I'm not talking about things that huge companies have to do. In in our business, we have I think now 16 different SaaS bills every month, tying together the different pieces of our business and we're trying to make it more efficient. And yet still things fall through the cracks. And when you want system A to talk to system F and make sure that this data moves over here or over there, uh, you have to become your own chief information officer you know, as well. And, and I think that's a challenge for small businesses that are not prepared just to get in the weeds and make sure all the systems and data are, are getting pushed around to the right places.
0: Yeah, and maybe as well, traditionally not used to it. They have maybe some software that's maybe in place for the last uh, 20 years and it's so outdated, but it's still okay and we don't need any more and we're just a small company, sort of. Uh, So they have always these excuses, why not to modernize? And eventually the software is so old that they can't even export the data and import it into a new system properly because half of the stuff is missing. It doesn't allocate anymore. And even if they stay with the same manufacturer, It just doesn't fit. That's the good thing about SAS. If you are in the SAS, they update it for you, and you have no of these headaches. Oh, I have to reinstall a new software. It's done, and you're up to date all the time. Okay, if they make this up the update, then they roll back and... Install it over the weekend and it's working again. But it's still better than trying to uh, keep a software for twenty years and then decide, oh, we need to update. But who, what, the tool can't even do this or that. Uh, we have to key all the data up by hand. <laughs> that can be a nightmare. And then you know you haven't got time to do your sales. I, you can't I've, even
1: deliver. <laughs> I've had my experience of dealing with digital transformation of legacy software and companies and and all that. And uh, I have now taken the position that I'm not. I'm not working with anybody that does uh, not run on SaaS. And you know, so we actually have a, a requirement of certain, you know, sort of uh, the, almost the the stack that the company runs on. It just it simply is untenable to work in those situations. I'll be happy to send the referrals for digital transformation work to uh anybody who's listening and (laughs) because i don't want (laughs) i don't want to do it anymore and uh you know and part of that is so when i talk about niching down if you circle around on the, the topic again part of niching down is knowing who you just simply don't deal with and for us we looked at certain things and said you know i could help i could help your company but you don't use the crm that we are certified in and um we are not going to do it. We we can't do it. If you'd like to switch over, we'll help you switch over. Uh, and some people don't, you know, don't like that. But we know that our expertise and our system works in a certain way. And, you know, our processes and the things we do, we need the tools we're familiar with. And uh, so we can essentially just decline work because they don't use the the systems that that we need them to use. And, and that's okay. You know, I, I'm not... I'm not going to fault anybody for doing what they're doing for certain reasons. It's just not a right fit for us. So it helps us, uh, you know, select out of customers that we don't want to deal with.
0: Yeah, and you're more focused, and you reduce as well your churn. <laughs> it's like with enterprise companies: the less problems you have, the more you're better fit, and they're better fit. Everybody benefits uh, to a much higher degree. The quality is better. Everybody's happier. The revenue fits, and and your time that you allocate for your customer fits as well to what you're billing and what he gets out of it and everybody's in much happier
1: that's the plan yeah i will often talk to you know the ceos and that the we work with and and i'll say you know we'll close that deal for you and the things that they're asking for but are you sure that you really want to do this is this not just a distraction that is not the core product or service that your company offers i know they're dangling Fifty thousand dollars in front of you for a custom, you know, approach, but is that just a distraction? Because you're going to have people that you have to pull off on it. You're going to have to manage, you know, a forked process. It's it's not dissimilar to you know a SaaS company that would be willing to fork their code uh, for a, a major customer. The overhead, maintenance, and uh, you know, problems that come out of, of doing that are substantial, and so. Sure, you know, we could get a big commission from closing that thing, but I don't think it's the best thing for the company. And I'll, I'll tell our founders that. So, you know, we, we want to be responsible when we're booking revenue that isn't just, uh, uh, you know, a bad move for the, the company, even though it looks like a big number.
0: Yeah, that's true. So it was great having you here on the show. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more, do business with you or or get your advice and that?
1: Oh, I sure appreciate that. It's good being here. Uh, great conversation. Well, I I uh, am a co-host on a podcast myself. It's Leaders of B2B.com, so you can check that out. It's on all the major distribution platforms where I interview uh, B2B leaders in all kinds of different spaces. Um, our website is ad10.co. It's ADD numeral 1 Z E R O. CEO, you can always reach out to us there. And I'm David Ledge, Ledgerwood on LinkedIn. Very easy to find. I post all kinds of videos and articles and uh, things of that nature. If you're interested in some educational materials, uh, learning more about sales, some of the strategies that we talked about on the show here, we try to put out as, as much as we can and just you know help people grow their business.
0: Yeah, that was great. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you, Christian.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Growth Zone with Christian Barge. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review or rating here on iTunes or on podchaser.com. If you found the content helpful, then share it on social media. I would like to invite you to follow our show so that you don't miss the upcoming interviews with leaders in the market simply visit the website follow.prmediareach.com. I will be adding the link also to the description of this episode so that you just need to click on that link. For those of you who are listening and signing up to follow the show, I have reserved a free copy of the Ultimate Guide on Content Marketing. This is the strategy that got me top corporate clients like McDonald's, Linde, Hewlett-Packard, Deutsche Bank, Volvo and many others. That strategy has been working for over 10 years. It also got me contacts with police, transport authorities, military and several universities and even leading research institutes. For sure, it also worked wonders as it got me many small, medium-sized entrepreneurs and enterprises as clients. And that even included international clients from all around the world. The link to sign up for our free broadcasting service and the guide is follow.prmediareach.com that will give you access to the most recent version of my ultimate guide on content marketing. You can follow me as well on Twitter by using the Twitter handle C-A-P-Barge. That's spelled Charlie, Alpha, Papa, Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Tango, Sierra, Charlie, Hotel. Yes, that is C-A-P-Barge.